Good evening, Mendocino County. This is Michelle Hutchins, your host this evening with this month's edition of Inside Education. In tonight's edition of Inside Education, I'll cover what students expect to see different this year as school resumes and what parents can do to help their children with the transition back to school. Most schools have opened their doors to students already. By the end of the month, all schools in Mendocino County will have welcomed students back to school. As students and teachers return to school, they are finding that campus looks much like it did during pre-pandemic life, even though variants of COVID-19 continue to spread. California lifted its face mask mandate last spring, and face coverings remain optional. Gone are the lines marking where students should stand to ensure social distancing. Sanitizing stations and classrooms and some plexiglass barriers remain among the few physical reminders of the ongoing pandemic. Across Mendocino County, schools are offering students and staff take-home COVID-19 testing kits when requested. Meanwhile, in elementary schools, younger students are enrolling this year as California ushers in universal transition kindergarten for four years old for students that are four years old and who turn five between September 2nd and February 2nd. We will discuss this evening some new state laws and initiatives and how they affect our rural county of Mendocino that over 13,000 students call home. Later in the hour, We'll talk about addressing learning loss and anxiety related to school resuming. One new law having little effect in our county, because most of our schools meet the state definition of rural, is the law that requires middle schools to start no earlier than 8 a.m. and high schools no sooner than 8.30 a.m. In 2019, when California legislators passed this law, it was touted as the first of its kind in the nation. Numerous studies and experts and parents who will attest to this say teenagers don't get the recommended 10 hours of sleep their bodies need, posing numerous health risks. The law's goal is to give sleep-deprived students some extra snooze time so they can be more alert to absorb early morning lessons and less likely to suffer from anxiety, depression, and other health problems. The law provides a rural school exemption, which most, if not all of our schools, meet the definition for rural, making implementation optional. It will be interesting to see the results of this implementation on learning. Stay tuned as Inside Education will report on the success of the later start times on learning results. As far as pandemic protocols, one new potential rule for this school year was postponed. Governor Gavin Newsom's mandate for older students to be vaccinated against COVID-19. In October, California became the first state in the nation to require the vaccinations for all school-aged children, starting with students in grades 7 through 12. But the California Department of Public Health announced in April it would hold off on that mandate until at least July 1, 2023. The reason is to ensure sufficient time for successful implementation of the new vaccine requirements. 
A COVID-19 vaccine requirement for children has proven controversial, with many parents objecting to the mandate. Teachers and school staff in California, however, must either be vaccinated against the virus or test weekly for it. California schools have reopened for the fall semester with loosened COVID-19 protocols and low student vaccination rates among younger children, presenting a new test for the trajectory of the pandemic as some experts expect another rise in cases when winter arrives. The general move away from expansive masking and testing requirements reflects officials' confidence in other tools at schools' disposal and comes as California is enjoying sustained drops in newly reported infections and coronavirus-positive hospitalizations. But health experts are watching to see how schools do in the coming weeks, especially given how many youngsters remain unvaccinated. Only 37% of children ages 5 to 7 have completed their primary vaccination series in California, quite low compared to the 67% vaccination rate for adolescents, 12 to 17, and 78% for adults 18 to 49, according to the State Department of Public Health. In Mendocino County, we have 26% of students aged 5 to 11 that are fully vaccinated, 57% of students ages 12 to 17 that are fully vaccinated, with 72% of people aged 18 to 49 being fully vaccinated, and 85% of people 50 to 64 being fully vaccinated. These low vaccination trends continue into Mendocino County. Without mandatory masks or regular in-school testing, one of the best ways to protect youngsters against infection is to get your child vaccinated. Cannot emphasize that enough. But despite months of messaging and availability, our vaccine uptake amongst our youngest school-aged children has slowed. We are encouraging parents to, yes, get your children vaccinated for this school year. This is Michelle Hutchins, your host this evening with this month's edition of Inside Education. Let's switch gears a little bit and move to some new money that is coming into our schools. And one program I feel is very important to outline from a rural county superintendent's perspective is the competitive grant program to expand the community school concept around the state. Where are the California Community School Partnership Program grants going? An article published on August 17, 2022, by Henry O'Connell and the Opportunity Institute states the following. In 2021, the state of California allocated an unprecedented $3 billion in grant funding over a seven-year period to support the California Community Schools Partnership Program. A year later, this year, the state invested an additional $1.1 billion in the program. The historic investments signal California's strong commitment to community schools, and there is reason to believe these investments could pay off. When implemented with fidelity, 
Research shows that a community school's approach can boost student outcomes. However, successfully operating a community school's program of this magnitude will require significant planning and high-quality implementation. The first round of California Community School Partnership Program grants were announced in May 2022 and local educational agencies or schools will begin spending the funds this school year. So who applied for these grants around our state? LEAs, or what we call local educational agencies and schools, demonstrated high interest in the program despite the timeline for applying being relatively short. The California Department of Education received 293 applications for the California Community School Partnership Program Planning and Implementation Grants, with some applications including multiple districts that applied together as a consortium. In total, 384 different schools or different school agencies applied for funding and listed 1,053 schools in their grant applications, representing nearly 10% of California's public schools. Applicants who came from 46 of the state's 58 counties, this is a high number of applications. 46 of our 58 counties applied. The counties without applications were more often sparsely populated counties such as Alpine, Sierra, and Mariposa, though a few of the state's more populous counties, including Ventura, Stanislaus, and Solano, also did not have any LEAs that applied or any schools that applied. On average, schools that applied for the California Community Schools Partnership Program grants enrolled a higher needs population than non-applicants, as measured by the unduplicated counts of the students who are low-income, English learners, homeless, or foster youth. In particular, students enrolled in schools that applied for California Community School Partnership Program funds were much more likely to be low-income, English learners, or experiencing homelessness. Which applicants actually received this funding? The state had the resources to fund most applicants. However, California Department of Education received more interest in the implementation grant program than expected, and ultimately prioritized funding schools that enrolled at least 80% of high-need students. Overall, 91% of applications were funded, 268 of 293. However, some only received partial funding. Planning grant applications were approved at higher rates. They had a 95% approval rate than the implementation grant applications, which only had an 84% approval rate. California Department of Education approved 192 planning grants, totaling 38 million, and 76 implementation grants, totaling $611 million. California Department of Education lists all 458 school sites receiving implementation grants. A full list of the grantees can be found on the California Department of Education website. 
while California Department of Education lists 192 local educational agencies that receive planning grants, a dozen additional LEAs should benefit since they are supported by lead applicants who received funding. For example, the Fresno County Office of Education applied on behalf of three unified school districts in Fresno County. While Fresno County was listed as the grantee by California Department of Education, students enrolled in Washington, Sierra, Mendota Unified School Districts will also benefit from that planning grant. This is Michelle Hutchins. You are listening to Inside Education. Who are the students who will benefit from the first round of grants? The grants appear to be flowing to schools that serve a high concentration of students with the highest needs. 90% of the students who are enrolled in schools that received implementation grants are unduplicated pupils, meaning they're either low income, English learners, or foster youth. This is significantly higher than the statewide unduplicated pupil average of 63%. Planning grants are also flowing into local educational agencies that serve a higher than average percentage of unduplicated pupils, 79%. This is in line with the California Community Schools Partnership Program's goal of prioritizing schools that serve students with the greatest level of need. Implementation grants also appear to be benefiting a disproportionately large share of African-American and Hispanic or Latino students as compared to statewide averages for both groups. Asian and Hispanic or Latino students are also a slightly larger share than statewide averages for both groups among planning grant recipients. So where in California is this money going? And this is the part, I think, that is most pertinent to Mendocino County. The California Community School Program grants are flowing across the state, but non-rural schools and local educational agencies, charter management organizations, and small school districts are the biggest winners in this round. Schools in rural locales applied for the grants at roughly the same rate as all other schools statewide. However, when we looked at which applicants received funding, rural schools fared relatively poorly. The success rates for applicants in different types of locales and the locations of these grantees really shows that most of the money went to non-rural, small school, and charter management organizations. This is surprising since California Department of Education and community school advocates have made funding small and rural schools a priority. The planning grant program has a $200,000 maximum grant and is restricted to schools that do not currently operate community schools. Since charter schools are designated as individual local educational agencies, charter management organizations are eligible to apply on behalf of multiple sites. For example, 
Magnolia Science Academy applied for and was awarded planning grants of $200,000 for each of their nine campuses in Southern California. On the other hand, large local educational agencies were limited to a single $200,000 award to plan for all of their schools. This rule means that charter management organizations and other small local educational agencies receive more planning dollars per school site than larger local educational agencies. Also, LEAs that operate even a single community school were ineligible to apply for planning grants even though some larger school districts and county offices of education may have benefited from a mix of planning and implementation grants. Looking ahead, the California Community School Partnership Program represents a historic investment in the future of California public education. We hope, or I hope, that by shedding light on who applied for and received funding can help policymakers and advocates continue to improve the program. Some questions to be asking our lawmakers. Should the application process or evaluation criteria be adjusted for future rounds of California Community School Partnership Program grants to ensure an equitable distribution of funds to different parts of the state? including rural communities. Do the current application eligibility rules advantage charter management organizations or smaller LEAs over larger schools? Should policymakers prioritize creating new community schools, expanding programming, or sustaining operations within the California Community School Partnership Program funds? Over two-thirds of the implementation grants this cycle helped existing community schools sustain or expand programming, while one-third helped launch new community schools. Though this program is in its earliest days and spending priorities and strategies may shift over time, we believe it's worth examining how districts are currently planning to spend their grants to support community schools. This will be part of a longer-term effort to understand the link between investments, spending strategies, and ultimately, student outcomes. Stay tuned as we will report on Inside Education on how these funds and how these efforts play out throughout the state. How this is playing out locally. We do know that Chanel Valley Academy did apply for a California Community School Partnership Program planning grant and was funded in the first round for this planning grant. We also know that Mendocino districts are currently rallying to submit an application for planning grants for the next round of funding, and Inside Education will keep you up to date in terms of how those plans play out and whether or not we are, have more schools that are funded for community schools in our county. Stay tuned for more information in the future on that. This is Michelle Hutchins with Inside Education, and we are talking about all kinds of different issues relating to education as we open our school doors and come back to school this August. 
For an issue of addressing learning loss, school systems have a big decision to make in how to help students catch up from COVID-19. New evidence suggests that learning acceleration is the right approach. Let's talk a little bit about this. Research suggests more students have experienced more unfinished learning over the last two years than ever before. With the COVID-19 pandemic waning, school systems are facing a critical choice about how to respond. Should they use the traditional approach of reviewing all the content students missed, known as remediation, or should they start with the current grade's content and provide just-in-time supports when necessary, known as learning acceleration. Mounting evidence supports an academic strategy known as acceleration, in which students who are behind are challenged with grade-level material while getting help with missing skills or knowledge but new research finds its use in schools is currently more talk than action. Analyzing data from 3 million students assigned lessons through a widely used literacy program, two nonprofits did a study and found that during the 2020-2021 school year, the first full year in most of the country after the start of the pandemic, students were assigned work below their grade level a third of the time. Children in high poverty schools were given less challenging material more often than their affluent peers, even when they had already mastered grade level assignments. This analysis reveals a stark disconnect between the extent of students' unfinished learning during the pandemic and the opportunities they're getting to engage with grade level work they'll need to catch up. It suggests that while many school systems are talking about learning acceleration, far fewer have implemented a successful learning acceleration strategy. I want to outline this report in a little bit more detail because it adds to a body of research that predates COVID. In 2018, it was found that overall students spend some 500 hours a year, the equivalent of six months, doing work below their grade level. Teachers are often trained to provide material that align with what they perceive to be students' level of mastery in the hope that success will bolster the students' confidence. What is very interesting, too, is that when given, when students are given grade level work versus students given below grade level work, and they're given an assessment. Student is tested both with the grade level work and the lower grade level work. On average, the student performs only three questions better on the lower than grade level work than the grade level work. The amount of bolstering the student's confidence is really quite small when you actually look at the research behind it. This is part of the justification for why we're looking at acceleration. This is Michelle Hutchins, County Superintendent of Schools with Inside Education. 
We're discussing a variety of issues relating to students returning to the classroom this school year, um, including an evaluation of learning loss and how school districts are going about addressing the issue of learning loss with our students. New data from Zern, which is a nonprofit organization whose online math platform is used by one in four elementary students nationwide, provides one of the first direct comparisons of these two approaches in K-12 education and compelling new evidence that school systems should make learning acceleration the foundation of their academic strategies. To bring this locally, this is a big shift that has been made by Mendocino College already. And we are looking, our K-12 partners are looking closely at Mendocino College to find out how they're enacting this actually in the classroom. This new data that came out from Zern Findings include this. Students who experienced learning acceleration struggled less and learned more than students who started at the same level but experienced remediation instead. Students of color and those from low-income backgrounds were more likely than their white wealthier peers to experience remediation even when they had already demonstrated success on grade level content. Learning acceleration was particularly effective for students of color and those from low-income families and students learning English. This is strong evidence that learning acceleration works and that it could be key to unwinding generations-old academic inequities the COVID-19 pandemic has only exacerbated. System leaders have an important opportunity in the months ahead to start providing teachers with the resources and support they need and to start building the skill and belief that's necessary to help every student engage in grade level work right away. As a parent, what can you do to find out how your school is addressing learning loss? Here are some questions you can ask adults in the education system to help ensure your child and other students get the opportunities they need in school to reach their full potential. You can access these resources at Accelerate, Don't Remediate at www.tntp.org accelerate. For teachers, some of the questions parents can ask, is my student performing on grade level in each subject? And a key follow-up is how do you know? The follow-up is key because we need to make sure that how students are being assessed is done in a way that really evaluates where they are in their learning. How do you know that my student is performing on grade level in each subject? Another question parents can ask teachers 
If their student is on or ahead of grade level, if they perform on or ahead of grade level, is what is your plan to ensure that my student is being challenged and can continue to grow? If your student is behind in grade level standards, then a question could be, how far, is my, how far behind is my child? And what is your plan to get them back on track? How can I assist in my student's education this year? How will I know how much progress my student is making towards grade level standards? How often does my student receive grade level work? These are all great questions that you can ask teachers either doing a back to school night presentation or during that opportunity when you're meeting the teacher for the first time this school year. This is Michelle Hutchins, your host this evening with this month's edition of Inside Education. In tonight's edition of Inside Education, I'll cover what students expect to see different this year as school resumes and what parents can do to help their children with the transition back to school. If you have the opportunity to speak to the superintendent, to a school board member or to another school leader in the school agency, here are a series of questions that parents or community members can ask to find out about how students are performing on grade level and in each subject. So again, these questions are more geared towards superintendents, school board members, and school leaders. How will you ensure each parent or guardian knows whether their student is performing on grade level in each subject? How do parents, guardians know which schools and teachers provide students the opportunity to do grade level work? Do all students, regardless of race, family, income, etc., have the same opportunity to do grade level work? How much time do students spend doing grade level work versus work that is below grade level? How do you know? Again, the question, how do you know, is very important when parents are speaking to school officials so they can understand that there are real plans behind what the officials are stating. Will you commit to providing this information to parents? What is your plan to ensure all students are on grade level by the end of the 22nd-23rd school year? These are all questions that school district superintendents and your school board members, as well as other school officials, should be prepared to answer. Another question you can ask is I understand that learning acceleration, where all students get access to grade level assignments, can help students catch up. Are you planning to use learning acceleration? If so, how can I find out details about the strategy? If not, what strategy are you using instead? And what evidence do you have that it helps all students get on track? Okay. Those are a few questions that you can use to ask school officials what they believe their program is doing for helping students get on track.
we hear nationwide about student learning loss. And in reality, what we're finding is that students are very, very agile learners, and that when provided with grade level curriculum and infused with support, when their point of confusion occurs, and just for what that area of confusion entails, getting them to the next step, they're very successful at moving forward. These are a few questions to help you if you're interested in pursuing that for your own children. Okay, this is Michelle Hutchins, County Superintendent of Schools. I'm here with Inside Education. We are talking about a variety of different things relating to back to school issues students, children, and parents need to know this August prior to school starting or as school starts. Let's talk a little bit about student anxiety. We know that students can receive or or feel a lot of anxiety when going back to school. I even know as a professional, when I worked as a teacher and a principal and a superintendent, there is always anxiety when it comes to coming back to school. But what is normal anxiety when entering a new school year versus abnormal anxiety? When vacations come to an end, it's not surprising to hear moans and groans from children as their television programs are interrupted by commercials promoting the beginning of the year savings of school supplies and clothing. With the first day of school approaching, it's common for kids to feel some apprehension. The new school year means the end of extensive leisure time and the beginning of new challenges and responsibilities. A new teacher, classroom, and schedule, in addition to a harder curriculum and higher expectation for academic performance, are enough to cause anxiety, really, in any of us. Moreover, these challenges are sometimes accompanied by additional obstacles, such as having to adjust to an entirely new school. It is safe to say that the majority of students see the approaching school year as both an academic and social challenge. Some see it as quite stressful. But when is anxiety excessive? And how can you tell? There are some students who are paralyzed by the anxiety of returning to school, perceiving the event as an academic and social threat in which the stressful situation is anticipated as harmful and fearful. According to the Anxiety Disorders Association of America, one child in every eight suffers from an anxiety disorder. With that being said, a teacher with a classroom of 25 can expect to have about two to three children with high anxiety levels. Anxiety is considered excessive when it interferes with a child's well-being and ability to learn. Again, it's considered excessive when it interferes with a child's well-being and ability to learn. High levels of anxiety are often apparent in a child's behavior such as temper tantrums and refusals to attend school. 
Excessive anxiety can lead to school avoidance. It can also manifest as physical symptoms, such as trouble breathing, nausea, headaches, and stomach aches. A child who expresses such symptoms should see a physician, as well as having special attention from his or her teacher, and probably a support staff member, such as a school psychologist or counselor. Separation anxiety is to be expected, particularly among those just starting pre-kindergarten or kindergarten. Indeed, some children experience great emotional distress when asked to spend extended periods with anyone other than his or her parents or guardians. Identifying high anxious students involves taking note of students who display behavior learning, and or emotional problems. Special attention should be paid to those who are frequently absent and disconnected from peers and school activities. This is Michelle Hutchins. You are listening to Inside Education, and we are talking about a variety of changes that California schools are facing this year. What can be done to support students as they return to school? Help them with anxiety-reducing information and support. Anxiety may manifest as uncertainty and a fear that the worst will happen. To mitigate this, it's important that teachers be aware of students' concerns and address them with supportive measures. Children often need more information that conveys that what is expected for their level of schooling is within their grasp. Parents need to be informed and mobilized about these matters as well. Some of this can be done before the start of the term. For example, some uncertainty can be reduced by familiarizing students with what they will be encountering. School tours during the spring or summer help acquaint them with the layout, key places and persons on the campus schedule and so forth making those back-to-school nights even more important. Also, during the summer, some schools encourage students to come to the campus by offering movies, concerts, summer classes, and sporting events. Most importantly, plan. Particularly important is that students and learning support staff plan for the arrival of new students with special attention to those who will struggle with the transition. Teachers can plan ways to reduce student uncertainty by designing classroom routines and schedules that will be experienced as motivating and non-threatening. At the elementary school level, at all times, the key is be aware of student concerns and keep parents engaged. Schools should make parents aware of the anxieties children are likely to experience. They should encourage parents to have open discussions with their children about their feelings on starting school so they are better able to address concerns. As many concerns stem from uncertainties, schools should inform parents of what is and is not expected of their child at a particular grade level and clarify ways to counter fears. 
Encouraging a dialogue between a child and the person they are closest to is an important step in supporting a child suffering from heightened levels of anxiety. Part of such dialogue might include listing a child's fears on one side of a paper and writing facts on the other side. Schools can also help parents be aware of the signs of anxieties so they can effectively intervene. An example would be if your child is having difficulty sleeping, asking lots of what-if questions, crying, clinging, or whining more than usual, these may be signs of anxiety. Schools can encourage parents to normalize their child's fears. Explaining to the child that it is natural to be worried and that even teachers feel nervous at the beginning. You can even tell your children that even principals feel nervous at the beginning. Schools can encourage parents to normalize their children's fears by explaining that it is natural to be worried. Moreover, parents can be encouraged to explain that they will feel more at ease as they become more accustomed to their new educational environment. Teachers for young children know that building positive relationships can serve as a preventative measure for back-to-school anxiety. Researchers certainly support this. Children with whom kindergarten teachers reported a positive relationship were rated in spring of grade one as better adjusted than was predicted on the basis of their identified ratings from the fall of kindergarten year. Classrooms with supportive emotional climates buffer anxious solitary children from risk or social emotional difficulties. That was from a study in 2011 by Spangler. At the middle and high school level, again, the key is to be aware of the student's concerns and keep parents engaged and well-informed about transition concerns. This includes providing parents with the knowledge necessary to reassure their children and to notice early signs of anxiety. Researchers stress that support for the transition from elementary school to middle school needs to begin late in elementary school, perhaps the entire grade five, and to continue throughout the summer and into the first semester or year of middle and junior high school. The same goes for those starting high school. Transitional programs often are described as having three major components. They have a procedural component, the type of early orientation steps outlined above, academic components where it's often recommended that transition programs incorporate a structured study skills class that encourages students to take on more responsibility for their learning, and then of course social emotional supports can be designed to help students fit in and make friends. With respect to a support system, there are roles to be played by administrators, teachers, parents, and students. For example, an older student that made a successful transition the previous year can be particularly helpful serving as a model and a support for a new student. One recent installment to the middle school and high school system is assigning incoming students to a family or academy within the new school. This can facilitate transition by building a sense of community and belonging. 
Also, to heighten feelings of community and belonging, students can be encouraged to participate in organizations, clubs, and teams. Children in classroom with highly supportive emotional climates may increasingly become a cohesive group over the course of an academic year. Such cohesion may result when the teacher promotes mutual respect, inclusion among all students in the class. Moreover, students in supportive classrooms are reported to engage in significantly less avoidance behavior than students in ambiguous or non-supportive environments. That was pulled from a study from Patrick in 2003. Students who feel that they are appreciated and are contributing something to their campus help create a fulfilling learning environment and successful transitions. If you're interested in how to help students transition to school, more information can be found at the University of California Los Angeles Center on Mental Health in Schools. This is Michelle Hutchins. You're listening to Inside Education. I'm the County Superintendent of Schools, and we are discussing many transition issues for students that relate to transitioning to back to school. With an influx of state and federal funding aimed at expanding access to school meals, California districts are ramping up food production, upgrading menus, and using more fresh, healthy ingredients than before. School meals will continue to be free for all California students as they have been since the beginning of COVID-19 pandemic. Educational leaders hope that by ensuring all students get fed for free while at school and improving the quality of meals, districts can combat food insecurity experienced by families in their area. In the 2022-2023 school year, this will be the first year that California, along with Maine, Vermont, and a few other states, are promising to provide every child with free breakfast and lunch. Since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has reimbursed districts for providing free meals to all students. Before then, districts were only reimbursed for feeding low-income students enrolled in the National School Lunch Program. The USDA's Universal Meal Program sunsets at the beginning of the 22-23 school year, though it will still reimburse districts for meals for low-income students. Starting this school year, California and other states have taken it upon themselves to pick up the remainder of the bill to provide free school meals to all students. Congress has proposed legislation that would expand student access to free school meals, and the USDA is increasing its reimbursement rates for free meals. The USDA U.S. Department of Agriculture, has also invested millions in programs to promote partnerships between schools and farms, as well as to support districts to improve the quality of school meals. In 2021-22, California lawmakers committed to allocating $650 million each year to the Universal Free Meal Program, as well as $54 million in the 21-22 budget to supplement state meal reimbursements to districts. The 22-23 schools' budgets provided an extra $600 million towards a grant program to upgrade school kitchen infrastructure 
and $100 million for a grant program to promote the best food procurement practices, such as buying California-grown produce and providing options for students with dietary restrictions. USDA's Undersecretary Stacy Dean said the farm-to-school connection is crucial to strengthening local food systems and withstanding global supply chain and inflation impacts. We have many opportunities local for farm-to-school programs. Most of our school districts have a farm-to-school program and work with North Coast Opportunities to secure more farm-fresh produce for their school cafeterias. This is just one of the many things that California is doing to make schools a positive place for children to be. This is Michelle Hutchins, your host this evening with this month's edition of Inside Education. Well, that concludes our show for this evening. In conclusion, I ran across something that I found very pertinent for my life currently, and I felt like just sharing it with all of you. It is a it was written, it was, this was written in the Utney Reader, the July-August 2002 issue of the Utney Reader. It was written by Margaret J. Wheatley, and it talks about how all social change begins with a conversation. I felt it very pertinent to where our world is today and felt it worthy of sharing. So here it goes. These are the words of Margaret Wheatley, and all social change begins with a conversation. For conversation to become a powerful tool in society, we must take it seriously and examine our own role in making it successful. Here are some basic principles I've learned over the years of hosting formal conversations around the country. We acknowledge one another as equals. One thing that makes us equal is that we need each other. Whatever any one of us knows alone is not enough to change things. Someone else is bound to see things that we need to know. We try to stay curious about each other. I maintain my curiosity by reminding myself that everyone has something to teach me. When others are saying things I disagree with or have never thought about, or that I consider foolish or wrong, I remind myself that I really can learn from them. If I stay open and do not shut them out. We recognize that we need each other's help to become better listeners. The greatest barrier to good conversation is that as a culture, we're losing the capacity to listen. We're too busy. We're too certain of our own views. We just keep rushing past each other. At the beginning of any conversation I host, I make a point of asking everyone to help each other to listen. This is hard work for almost everyone. But if we talk about listening at the start of a conversation, it makes things easier. If someone hasn't been listening to us or misinterprets what we say, we're less likely to blame that person. We can be a little gentler 
with the difficulties we experience in a group if we make a commitment at the start to help each other listen. We slow down so we have time to think and reflect. Most of us work in places where we rarely have time to sit together and think. We dash in and out of meetings where we make hurried, not thoughtful decisions. Working to create conditions for a true spirit of conversation helps rediscover the joy of thinking together. We remember that conversation is the natural way humans think together. Conversation is not a new invention or the 21st century. We're restoring a tradition from earlier human experience. We remember that conversation is the natural way humans think together. Conversation is not a new invention for the 21st century. We're restoring a tradition from earlier human experience. It does, however, take time to get out of our modern ways of being in meetings to get past the habits that keep us apart. Speaking too fast, interrupting others, monopolizing the time, giving speeches or making pronouncements. Many of us have been rewarded for these behaviors, becoming more powerful by using them. But the blunt truth is that they don't lead to wise thinking or healthy relationships. We expect it to be messy at times. Life doesn't move in straight lines, and neither does a good conversation. When a conversation begins, people always say things that don't connect. What's important at the start is that everyone's voice gets heard, that everyone feels invited into the conversation. The words of Margaret J. Wheatley. All social change begins with a conversation. From the Utney Reader, July-August 2002 issue. With that, I thank you for listening to Community Supported Radio. This is Michelle Hutchins, your County Superintendent of Schools. Enjoy your evening. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.